0: You're listening to The Good Faith, a podcast dedicated to applying historic Christian thinking to today's issues of faith, family, books, and culture. With your host, pastor, parent, and perpetual student of theology and culture, Chad Graham. The second foundational article of belief for Christianity is a belief in one Lord, Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. The news is really never lacking in opportunities to see questions regarding the lordship of Christ. And it is instructive to see how religious freedom is treated in the courts. The Supreme Court of Canada, in a very important 2009 decision, Alberta, and Hutterite Brethren of Wilson Colony. That is Alberta v. versus the Hutterite Brethren of Wilson Colony. The province of Alberta was putting in new um, driver's license regulations, putting in picture photo ID and higher security things for counterterrorism and all the things that have been going on in this last century. The Hutterite Brethren will Wilson Colony believe that to have their picture taken is a violation of the Second Commandment. Now, this is not part of mainline Christian teaching. This is a, a small, um, rather obscure sub group, a minority faith group, the Hutterite Brethren. And uh, there's a good number of them on some colonies within the province. They're a little bit like the Amish, if you're more familiar with them. Former Chief Justice of Canada, uh, Beverly McLachlan, notes that the colonists were simply unwilling to compromise in taking on photo ID or some variation of this, while the government was unwilling to compromise the requirement. Which makes an interesting point at the 61st paragraph. This is not to suggest the colony members are acting improperly. Freedom of religion cases, she writes for the majority, may often present this all or nothing dilemma. Compromising religious beliefs is something adherents may understandably be unwilling to do, and governments may find it difficult to tailor laws to the myriad ways in which they may trench on different people's religious beliefs and practices. The result may be that the justification of a limit on the right falls to be decided not at the point of minimal impairment which proceeds on the assumption the state goal is valid but at the stage of proportionality effects which is concerned about balancing the benefit of the measure against its negative effects speaking of the amish the united states case with some similarities in principle was argued a few years ago in 1971 the united states at the united states supreme court wisconsin and yoder In this case, the concern was mandatory, compulsory education past the eighth grade. And the court considered the state's broader contention that its interest in the system of compulsory education is so compelling that even the established religious practice of the Amish must give way. The court said, however, where fundamental claims of religious freedom are at stake, we cannot accept such a sweeping claim. Despite its admitted validity in the generality of cases, we must search and examine the interest that the state seeks to promote by its requirement for compulsory education to age 16, and the impediment to those objectives that would flow from the recognizing the claim of Amish exception. Now, from the Canadian perspective, while it wasn't wrong to hold a sincerely held religious belief, the question was that if the state's compelling reason is strong enough then too bad so sad the state can have their regulation and the person of religious faith is no longer able to drive in the united states decision it went the other way and the court said well the state has to make a compelling case that this is necessary to overdo the religious freedom of this individual group now i don't share the beliefs of either of these groups most most people don't but i think we generally if we have a, at least if we have a generous spirit understand that people have the right to their beliefs and to live the way they want to live with at least a minimal of interference, especially if they're not really harming anyone else. The court was very, very clear in Hutterite Brethren that there was no evidence whatsoever that any harm had or was likely to occur to the state of Alberta from not having the photo element on the IDs of a or rather on the driver's licenses, of a very small group of Hutterite individuals, especially when they were willing to compromise and say that these licenses would be a recognition that they were qualified to drive, but would say right on them, not valid for identification purposes. And yet the state wasn't willing to compromise on that, and the court held uh, that was okay. The minority, the dissenting group of justices who, although they didn't win, and although Hutterite Brethren became law, the dissent justices had some important things to say. Listen to a Justice Abuelo rights. Unlike the severity of its impact on the Hutterites, the benefits to the province of requiring them to be photographed are at best marginal. Over 700,000 Albertans do not have a driver's license and are therefore not in the province's facial recognition database. That was a uh, marginal note that was the um, objective of the government to create this facial recognition database. Bella continues, there is no evidence that in the context of several hundred thousand unphotographed Albertans, the photos of approximately 250 Hutterites will have any discernible impact on the province's ability to reduce identity theft. So today, the Hutterite brethren have a simple choice before them. They can be faithful to their religious convictions, or they can participate in in the driving culture of the province of Alberta. It's pretty tremendous when you think about what this region of the world is like. This is a big, wide open state. These are primarily farmers who have to get into town. And The court argued they could hire drivers to take them in. I guess they can, and that appears to be what many of them have done. But it certainly brings us right into the forefront of the consideration of what it means to recognize lordship. For the early church, this was no mere theoretical matter. The Roman emperors claimed to be Lord, and to say anyone but Caesar was Lord was a potential death sentence. And yet Christians proclaimed loudly, boldly, confidently, and humbly, Jesus is Lord. It was for this testimony that many of them were killed and became the martyrs of history. But why is it that Jesus has a claim to Lordship? God, we noted, is worthy. Because he's creator. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and have their being. Revelation four eleven. But in Revelation 5, John reports in heaven. The angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, say with a loud voice, speaking of the Lord Jesus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and the sea and all that's in them says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The creed is very clear that we believe in one God, the maker of heaven and earth, but we also believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through the Lord, all things are made. He, too, is the creator, and his creator has a priority, has a lordship claim. And this seems a little funny to us in our sort of egalitarian, democratic-type societies, but really it's n- not that crazy. We know that when you make something, you have an ownership claim over it. We have intellectual property rights that are very important in the debates about what to do about digital media. We know that if you build... Uh, a Lego house and your sister or brother smashes it down, you're very angry about it because that was your Lego house. The Lego might have been bought by your parents. The Lego might be shared by the children, but the house that was built because you built it, that's yours. You have an ownership right. If I build a shed in my backyard, I own that shed. And even if I were to sell my house, as long as I haven't agreed to sell that shed, I can take that shed down and I can take it with me. It's mine because i built it. The whole world and everything in it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ because he built it. The crazy thing is that human beings are part of that which he created. Hmm. That gives us some perspective. That's, that's why God is owed lordship. But he's also owed lordship because of his kindness and goodness towards us. When we were created, God created us in his image to be image bearers. That's a major concept from the ancient world, but if you had an empire in the ancient world and it was hard to communicate and to travel, you put up your image, a statue of you, in the different locations that were part of your empire. And when people saw the image, they recognized the authority that you had back in the capital city. For human beings to be created in God's image means that our fundamental core existence... Our meaning for existing is to reflect God's lordship, his rule. But God is pretty good to us. We learn that he gave us dominion in the book of Genesis over all the earth. He placed the first humans into the beautiful garden that he created and prepared and asked them to tend and to keep it, to protect it, to guard it, and to develop it. And then he asked them to go out into all the world with their descendants and turn the whole world into a garden paradise, spreading God's image and the garden paradise throughout the world. Psalm chapter 8 comments on this as the psalmist worships, that God has crowned humanity with glory and honor. So every human being is made in God's image. Every human being is a reflection of God's leadership and every human being has a task to spread God's lordship over the earth. And so as Christians, we take very seriously the fact that we believe there is one Lord and he is Lord because he is creator and he created us in this way. He is uniquely related to God, as the different phrases of the creed say, and they help us to be very clear in our theology. He's the only begotten son of God. He's begotten, not made. He's eternally begotten. Now, this had to do particularly with the kind of heretical or false beliefs that were popular in that time. But the idea here is giving us every assurance that the Lord is equal to God in every way. We believe in one God and one Lord, and they are essentially, essentially the same. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of one being, one essence, with the Father. As Irenaeus, the second century church father, reminds us, the Son always coexists with the Father, and has revealed the Father from of old, from the beginning. There is a song, it's I think relatively popular still, called Mary did you know and it talks about how it's a Christmas song and how at Christmas Mary had the little baby child and held him in his her arms and he cried and he nursed and he was saying as you held that little baby there did you know that he's the creator and sustainer of all the earth and it's meant to draw us to this great reality we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ through him all things were made he is God and this of course is the great distinguishing mark of the Christian faith now in Christian history theologians have noted how this works Anselm of Canterbury for example speaks of God the Father as the eternal spirit the necessary pre-existing one because something exists rather than doesn't exist it had to come from somewhere and he argues it had to come from a creator who was not dependent on anything else now he argues there was nothing else and so this divine being contemplated himself and as he did his contempla- uh, from all eternity and as he did his contemplation because he's the perfect eternal being, formed a perfect eternal image of himself. And so from all time, from before all time, he's outside of time. The image of himself has always existed, his reason or his word. And so the word and God exist together for all eternity. And the best way to describe a word that comes from him is the thing begotten. So while God is alone, he is never alone, for his son is with him. And this is our Lord. Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Good Faith Podcast. For more episodes, related articles, and additional information, visit chadwgram.com. For resources related to the topics in this podcast, or for more episodes, visit chadwgram.com. Dot com. There you'll find the Good Faith site, where I have uh, other writings in which I explore various things in faith, family, books, and culture in both audio and article resources. My quotations from the early church fathers come from the Ancient Christian Doctrine series edited by Gerald Bray and Thomas Oden. The Nicene Creed is readily available online. I also quoted from the *Monologion* of Anselm of Canterbury in the Oxford edition of the major works of St. Anselm of Canterbury. The music that we have been enjoying in the background comes from the Tudor Consort and their track Curia Laison, which is protected under a Creative Commons copyright license, which allows use with attribution.